So we have a message on the scriptures, and the message on the scriptures, uh, pastors stand in my job, like things that we just say, but things that are in the scriptures. We call it expository preaching. We are to exposit and to exegete the meaning of that text and the main point of that text, and all the subpoints are supposed to come from that text. Uh, that's versus what's called eisegesis, which is like reading our thoughts into the text, which is something that we want to avoid. And so we have a message of scriptures, and then we have a benediction, which is God's blessing from his word. And so we consider uh, a worship service to be a, a place that is saturated in the scriptures. And then after that, during the week, we have Bible studies. We have our youth D groups that meet tonight and tomorrow night, and they have Bible studies. They pray over the scriptures, apply the scriptures, study the scriptures. Throughout the week, there's about, I don't know, 16 or 17 community groups that are studying the scriptures and, and applying the scriptures and praying over the scriptures. So we consider this to be a church, uh, people of the word. But while we say that the word is the foundation of the church, often we don't recognize or value that foundation. We don't usually take a look at that foundation. And I remember years ago when uh, we moved into Penn Lucy back in 1990, Marie and I and our family were looking to uh, seek God's call for at least that period from 1990 to 2002. Uh, God let us live in Penn Lucy to be part of his work here. But in the process of looking for a house, there was a house an abandoned old three-story Victorian house, 100 years old, on Old York Road here, not too far from the Clarks. And I went into that house to, to consider getting that and renovating that and went in with my father, who's a builder. The very first thing that he did was that we went into the basement. There was no electricity, so we went in there with some flashlights, and we appeared on the foundations. And as we got in there, we noticed there were hundreds and hundreds of holes, like three-inch holes that were just weaving in and all through this foundation, like Swiss cheese, and they were rat holes. And it was one of the creepiest experiences I've ever had walking into a basement. And my father turned to me and said, Son, the best thing that you can do with this house is to bulldoze it. He says it was unsalvageable, and actually a few months later, that's precisely what the owners did. They, they, they bulldozed that entire house. Foundations, things that we take for granted, things that support the infrastructure of the building that we are presently in, things that support our infrastructure as a church, we often take uh, for granted. In Psalm, Psalm 11.3, it says, When the foundations are being destroyed, what can the righteous do? You know, Paul, he talks about foundations in Ephesians chapter 2. He says, You are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household built on the foundation of the apostles and prophet, prophets with Christ Jesus as the chief cornerstone. And what Paul is saying here is that the church... The body of Christ is built upon a foundation, the foundation of the prophets and the apostles. And what he's talking about is the Old Testament and New Testament. It's the word of God with 
Christ as the chief cornerstone. It is a solid and firm foundation, and we will be spending the next eight weeks kind of looking at this foundation like a diamond and looking at the various facets of this diamond to see its beauty and its glory and its majesty that we might be a people that value the foundation that we have. And so uh, you can see where we're going with the, the various weeks before us. Jesus prayed to the Father, Father, sanctify them or set them apart, consecrate them by the truth. Your word is truth. So let's jump in on this first passage about success through the word, starting in Joshua chapter 1. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore, arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, into the land that I am giving to them, to the people of Israel. Every place that... The sole of your foot will tread upon I have given to you, just as I promised to Moses. From the wilderness and this Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all of the land of the Hittites to the great sea toward the going down of the sun shall be your territory. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life, just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous, do not be frightened, and do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. This is the word of the Lord. Everybody wants to succeed in life. But there are different perspectives on what people believe will bring them success or what the secret of success is. Mark Twain said the secret of success is making your vocation your vacation. I guess he's talking about trying to enjoy your work. Norman Vincent Peale said when people believe in themselves, they have the first secret of success. And then there was Albert Hubert, who said, the secret of success is this, there is no secret of success. But Joshua actually gives us the divine formula for success. According to the Bible, the secret of success is to know God's word, to speak God's word, to meditate on it, and then, above all, do it. He said in verse 8, this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you might be careful to do all according that is in it, for then you will be prosperous, and then you will have good success. One writer said this, this is why Joshua was so successful. Joshua was a good soldier, but there were others that were greater soldiers and maybe more brilliant than him. He was a leader of men, but there were probably others that were more gifted but Joshua's great secret was that he made it his job to know the law of God and to do it, 
to the tiniest detail. Joshua did not try to attend, try to second guess or improve on God's directives. And so God promises good success through his word. Our strength to succeed is through God's word, by the meditation on God's word, and his promised presence, who is the word. And so we're going to look at this passage from that angle. Our strength to succeed is through God's word. Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law Moses, my servant, commanded you. In this opening passage, Joshua introduces the entire book of, of Joshua in the conquest into the promised land as the, as the nation of Israel was getting ready to cross the Jordan. And in this process, there was a great transition. There was a great transition of leadership, which is all, always a very vulnerable time in the life of a nation or a, of any organization. And so M Moses was this great leader for all these years, but now Moses, the servant of God, is dead, and now Joshua has been called by God before the people of God to be the one to lead the people into this promised land. Leaders change, but God does not change. He's the same. Uh, but God does not tell Joshua just to be strong and courageous or just to man up or to play the man, uh, be strong in himself. Uh, God ties his call to be strong and courageous to the word of God. Be strong and courageous doing the word of God. Just so the, the only way that Joshua can have strength to follow God and to be successful is really by being careful to follow the word of God. Unless Joshua gives himself to that strong engagement, he will fail. And so these verses, they detail this special relationship of Joshua, the leader of God's people, to the word of God. And there, there was a body of scriptures, and this is the first time in the nation of Israel or the nation of God's people where there is now a canon, a body of scripture. And so we find that the first five books of Moses when is, is Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. These five books of Moses became really the gospel for the nation of Israel at this time. And this is what God is telling Joshua to study, to give himself to, to follow. Francis Schaeffer said this, Joshua knew Moses, the writer of the Pentateuch, that's the first five books, personally. Mo Joshua knew his strengths, his weaknesses as a man. He knew that Moses was a sinner, that Moses made mistakes, that Moses was just a man. Nonetheless, immediately after Moses' death, Joshua accepted the Pentateuch as more than the writing of Moses. He accepted it as the writing of God. And when it was given, God's people understood what it was. Right away, it had authority. And so this is what makes Joshua uh, what's been called the first uh, modern of the biblical books. In a sense, that situation of having a canon of Scripture of God's Word is similar to the time when after the apostles delivered uh, God's Word in the uh, gospel accounts and the epistles, and we have the whole of Scripture given to us to follow. Uh, the Bible is what ties us to God. And so here in this sacred text, 
it is given to Joshua, it's given to the people as the very word of God. And, and he tells them, don't turn from the right or to the left, that you might have good success. You know, we just, we just heard the scriptures from Psalm 1, and it echoed that call for the blessed person, the blessed woman, the blessed man, uh, who, who lives in a life of prosperity. And what is that prosperity? Well, the, the difference is, it says, blessed is he who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, or, or stand in the way of sinners, or sit in the seat of scoffers, those that are rebels and who disregard God. And it's not talking about a perfect person, this righteous person. It's not a perfect person, but they are repenting. They're seeking faith. They're seeking to walk. And it says, this person, who, what's the distinction? But his delight, her delight, is in the law of the Lord. And in this law, he meditates, she meditates both day and night. And that person will be like a tree planted by the streams of living water, who yields its fruit in its season, and its leaves don't wither. Every time I uh, walk over to the Towson High School track, there's like this stream that follows this roadbed to the track. And I've noticed that on both sides of this stream are just these trees that are just following that stream all the way. It's a very kind of a dense woods that just crop up right around that stream bed. And that's because those trees are constantly around that, that moisture, that water source, and they're, they're flourishing. Well, God wants us to flourish, and he wants us to flourish by staying in the word. But this word, we must recognize, is never separated from God himself. God does not separate himself from his word. So when he says, be strong in the word, he's being strong in God. We find in uh, Acts 20, uh, Paul says, Now I commit you to God and to the word of his grace, which can build you up and give you an inheritance to those who are sanctified. So, God, so Paul says, I commit you to God and to his word. He is joining God and the word together. And we find in Psalm 138, uh, he bows towards the temple to praise his name. He says, for you have exalted above all things your name and your word. And so uh, some weeks ago, I had, um, we had given a message on Ephesians chapter 6, which is the, talks about the armor of God. You know, be strong in the Lord and put on, uh, and be, uh, put on the full armor of God that you might take your stand against the devil's schemes. And uh, one of our young persons in our church, Colin Hicks, uh, the son of Jim and Rachel, uh, Jackie's brother, uh, decided he was going to draw on the backside of one of those, you know, those envelopes in your pews, uh, a picture of, our, of the sermon. And uh, it's, it's a warrior. And it's this picture of Ephesians 6, He's the full armor of God, a helmet of salvation, the breastplate of, of righteousness, the uh, arm, uh, or the, and the shield of faith. But then it has a sword, and it says, spirit on it. And in, this, in that passage, it says, and the, and the spirit of truth, which is the word of God. And so that is the full armor of God. And you can see the beast that he's attacking, or that's a, trying to attack him with these arrows and flaming arrows trying to, trying to knock him out. But this is a great picture of the spiritual warfare that, we in, that we're in. But the way we're victorious is by the word of God. That's a good point. So, Jai Packer said this, is that if I were the devil, 
One of the first aims would be to stop folk from digging into the Bible. How? Well, I should try to distract all clergy from preaching and teaching the Bible and spread the feeling that to study this ancient book directly is a burdensome extra which modern Christians can forgo without loss. At all costs, I should want to keep them from using their minds in a disciplined way to get the measure of its message. I think the evil one's doing a pretty good job of doing that. Uh, there was a, uh, a survey done by the American Bible Society through uh, Barna, which uh, revealed that half of Americans say that politics would be more civil if politicians engaged in regular Bible reading. You know, if more politicians read the scriptures more, they would be more civil. That's what a majority of, of Americans said. But this one person, a Bible scholar, said that biblical illiteracy in the U.S. is at a crisis point. He says Christians used to know, be, Christians used to be known as people of one book. They memorized it, meditated on it, talked about it, and taught it to others. We don't do that anymore, and in a very real sense, we're starving ourselves to death. I think he's right. But what's contributing, he says, to this biblical illiteracy is the way Americans view the Bible. And he said this, he says, many Americans don't consider the Bible to be authoritative. They don't consider the Bible to have a, a place of claim on their lives. He says other reasons include self-reliance, that they don't believe that uh, any authorities outside themselves should, should have a say in their lives, or distractions, social networking, which I get distracted with, texting and entertainment, unwarranted overconfidence, uh, being too busy. I grew up in the church, and I assumed that I know the Bible. Well, this graph here is, uh, was one of the most sobering graphs, and this is a graph that asked this question about, is the Bible sufficient for meaningful living? Uh, elders uh, said, 65% said yes, the Bible is sufficient for meaningful living. Boomers, I'm in that category, said it was. Gen Xers, 40%. Millennials, uh, and I think millennials are like, what? What's the age of millennials? I think it's like 20-some, 20 20-something. 20 I think it's in the 20-something, teens and 20. So you can see that there is a progression here, or a digression, I guess, right, uh, about where the place of the Bible is in uh, our lives. And you know what? This should be a sobering reminder for all of us, all of us, older people, younger people, that where is the place of the scriptures? And here's a sobering thing. Joshua, with the nation of Israel, went into the promised land, but one generation after Joshua died, this is what Judges says. It says, after that, whole generation had been gathered to the fathers. Another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. Then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and served the Baals. One generation. One generation is all it takes. Uh, I, had, uh, I had the pleasure this past Thursday. Uh, my daughter, Juliana, invited me to play soccer with her and a bunch of other high school friends. And so uh, Maria thought it would be a good idea for me to do that. I said, really? I said, okay, I'm going to go. I'm going to play. And uh, I was grateful that they let me play. And I was out there on the field. And, and Will Clark was out there. I think Will Clark's in the house. He's in the back row there, and Antonio was in there, and anyhow, so we were having a great time playing soccer, and uh, somewhere in the midst of uh, an aggressive engagement and collision took place with Will Clark, and I found myself on the turf 
and I fell on my uh, wrist, and uh, I didn't know if it was broken or not, uh, but it was clearly uh, messed up. And so the next six hours, Marie and I are sitting in GBMC in the uh, emergency ward, you know, getting waiting for X-rays. And uh, so I'm at about 2:30 in the morning. We're in the we finally made it to the, uh, the room, and you know, they have the TVs on, and there's different stupid shows that are being played, and we happened to be sitting there. Uh, it was some show about, uh, you know, a bachelor and a bachelorette, so there's three bachelorettes, and there was one bachelor, and you know, the bachelorettes were competing for the bachelor, and uh, they were sharing different things about themselves and secrets about themselves. And actually, there was a fairly amount of you know sexual innuendos that were that were given as they were trying to win the bachelor. And in the process, he had to make a selection on which which bachelorette he was going to choose. And so he finally chose one, and all the others leave. And then he had to share his secret. He had to share a secret to this young lady about himself uh, that she had, the ch she had the choice of whether she wanted to continue to go out with him or not. And this is what he, this is his secret. He said, in the last 24 hours, I have had sex with two women. That's what, that's what, that was his secret. In the last 24 hours, I've had sex with two women. And, and he shared that, you know, he was in Las Vegas and he just kind of got caught up into the party life of things, and, you know, that was, that was it. It was, you know, that was his secret. And I could tell the expression on the bachelorette who he won, whether, she, you know, the question is whether she will still go out with him. I could tell that she struggled when he said that. And she agreed to continue to go out with him, and she says, I hope that I can satisfy him. Uh, and so she did. She, she, she went out, but you could just feel that something changed, uh, that even in the midst of all of the entertainment and all of this stuff, you know, is she just going to be just another object for him? And I, if I could have spent some time talking to her, I'd say, don't do it. Don't do it. You know, there's a proverb that says that uh, death and destruction are never satisfied and neither are the eyes of man. And the reality is, is that if he can't, you know, be committed in a relationship with any other woman, why do you think that he's going to stay committed to you? Now, where do you get that notion? Look, if we're just, you know, we're just parts of a chance creation that has no moral foundation, then what's the big deal? You know, if you get hungry, you eat. And if you want sex, you just have sex, right? I mean, that's the deal, right? That's our world's culture. There's no difference. But here's the deal. The law of God's been written in our hearts. There's a conscience. We know that there's something amiss with that. And you know how we know for sure? Well, God's word tells us we are not just objects. We're not just a piece of meat. We are precious. We are image bearers of God and sex is special, and sex is sacred, and people need to be treasured. And that's what the scriptures tell us. That's what God's word tells us. That's what our conscience tells us. We keep pushing it down. So this is a movement in our society. Our society is disregarding the foundations of the scriptures. But 
what we see here is that not only is our strength through God's Word, but the, that our strength to succeed is through the meditation of God's Word. And so here's the book of the law. shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it, that you might be careful to do that's all written in it. And so here we give, we're given the formula to how to approach the Scriptures, how to succeed. And it's by constant, careful absorbing of God's Word. Uh, and the one thing is that Joshua is to personally read the Scriptures, to personally make it his own. You know, Joshua was, had these five books, these five books. Now, they weren't just like books that you were to just put into the Ark of the Covenant for safekeeping and like a museum piece, and every so often you would look at it. But the God is telling Joshua he is to look at this night and day. This, this, is, this should be a part of his regular life. And so we find in, in actually Deuteronomy chapter 17 that there's words given about the kings of Israel. And so the king of Israel is to take a copy of, uh, make a copy of the law so that he can read it and study it uh, all the days of his life to, re- to learn to reveal uh, God. And so Joshua was to make a copy, and he was going to read it. Then Joshua was to talk about the God. Do not let this book of the law depart from your mouth. And so it should be an object that he talks about with his family, uh, with his soldiers, with uh, friends and others. And I think about in uh, Deuteronomy chapter 6, it talks about how parents are to talk to their children with, about the word when they rise up, when they sit down, by the, when, when, they, when they go to bed. All the time, that just this discussing the scriptures is something that parents should be doing with their children because the word is precious to them. Now, if you ask my children in my house, they probably say, my parents kept trying to force us to learn the scriptures. They keep us reading the scriptures, but that's probably not true. Uh, and my wife tells me I don't do enough, and, and uh, you know, I, I tend to be more of a freedom guy, you know, like, I just want to, like, let the normal course of life in the scriptures speak, and, but there is a place for systematic instruction. We need both of those things. So scriptures should be something we talk about regularly, but then the scriptures should also be something that we meditate upon. Meditation, it's a step beyond just the knowledge of the scriptures. It's about studying and deducing for application, to make sure that it's true. You know, knowledge just puffs up, the scriptures say, but the scriptures are to change and transform our lives. Acts 17, it talks about the Bereans. The Bereans listened to Paul's message, but it says that, uh, they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. He, they examined them. You should be examining what your teachers are saying is true according to the scriptures. We, uh, we need to be a, a church that is serious about studying the scriptures for ourselves. I'm not infallible. I make errors. Uh, you know that. A lot of my other brothers and elders know that, you know. We, we actually have a system where we're evaluating our messages, and Stan and I and any other preacher gets input about our messages. And if we're saying something that is offline, that they, this is an opportunity to be corrected, and we need to be a people that can be corrected. The greatest, uh, the greatest single thing for me that helped me to grow and stay in the Scriptures is what my young life teacher told me when I was in high school. 
how to have a quiet time. And basically, you read the scriptures, you pray, God, show me what this passage is supposed to mean, and how can I apply it to my life? And so, back in uh, high school, I, uh, I, had, I started this little spiritual journal. That's is back, uh, I, was, I guess I was 16, 17 years old. And I just started to just write down, you know, here's what I read today. This is what God was teaching me, you know, and I maybe have a prayer in it. I will tell you this. The single reason that I'm still probably in the ministry is because I've been practicing spiritual journaling from high school days, where I would look at a scripture passage and ask God to show me what it means and the work is application. And so, you know, maybe you're not doing spiritual journaling, but having the scriptures being read regularly is really important thing. And praying for God to show you. Uh, it's not, you know, Moses said, this isn't just idle words. This is your very life. I've given some handouts out there in the foyer that can give you some help if you want to learn how to have a quiet time, you know, how to approach that. Uh, I have a, a chronological read through the Bible in a year uh, is, is one example, so feel free to take that. But the final thing is that uh, we get strength to succeed by the presence of God, which is the word. And so he says in verse 9, Have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous, do not be frightened, and do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Our source of strength in God's word is based not upon our obedience, but upon God's promised presence and his victory. And it's important for you to see that, that this whole call to obedience and meditating upon God's word is framed. First, where God promises Moses, I mean Joshua, that he will not leave him or forsake him, that as he was with Moses, he'll be with Joshua. Okay, And then it ends with, be strong and courageous, don't be, be frightened for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. So the promise that God is going to be with him and that he will be victorious precedes the call to study the scriptures. So what is that about? The point here is that Joshua will not be alone in striving for obedience to the law. Rather, the obedience and success will be enjoyed by the presence of the Lord God who gave both the law and the promises. Joshua will succeed, will not succeed because he obeys God's instructions. He will succeed because God is with him to enable him to obey God's instructions. That's the gospel, by the way. The only way that you and I can study the Bible, read the Bible, apply the Bible, is because God has done a work already in our hearts. He has already redeemed us. Just like he redeemed the people out of slavery in Egypt, then he gives them the law. The promise of grace precedes the law. And so that is the core basis for our success. Well, someone asked me after the last service, well, what is success? What is success that we're be, to be thinking about? How do I know I'm successful? And here it is. What did Jesus tell the, the apostles in Acts or Matthew chapter 20 at the end? He says, go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, and lo, I'm with you to the ends of the age. This is a parallel promise. He's with them, and he's calling them to go, but he's calling them to go in his power and in his presence. He's already done this work. And so success for us is not like the conquest of the Israelites into the promised land in that sense, where they 
basically brought the judgment of God against the nations and entered a, a time of rest, which is kind of the picture of heaven. Our conquest is to make disciples, is to go and make disciples and to teach our young people and our older people, you know, about Jesus and about seeing people find the love of Jesus and about growing in grace and making disciples who make disciples. That's, that's what success looks like for us. And God promises that he will work in us and do that. See, we're not strong and courageous in ourselves. In fact, we're pretty cowardly. We're pretty weak. We can't really do any of this in our own strength. The word Joshua, his name first was Hoshe, which meant salvation. In Numbers 13 it said, but then Moses changed his name to Joshua, which means the Lord is salvation, or the Lord is our victory. And that name Joshua in Hebrew is the word in Greek for Jesus. And the reality is, is that we need a Jesus. We need a, a Joshua to save us, to redeem us, to give us the courage to do what we are called to do and to be in his word. And so how do we know that he's, he's with us? Well, Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, after giving thanks, he took the bread and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Eat of this in remembrance of me. Jesus wanted us, you and I, to know that he hasn't left us. As often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. You and I have a really bad memory. We always are forgetting the love of God, the presence of God, the promises of God, and we need a constant reminder. And this supper is a tangible, physical reminder. Jesus wanted us to know he's still with us. He still loves us. He's still working through us. And so if you're here today and you have asked Jesus to forgive you of your sins, you've asked him to be the Lord of your life, you're seeking obedience in the church, he invites you to this table. If you haven't done that, I encourage you just to pray, God, would you show that more to me so that I could come to this table as a son or, or daughter? Um, I'd like to ask if the officers could come forward as we uh, prepare to take this. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that you give us uh, this reminder of your presence, of your promise. Uh, Lord, we cannot save ourselves. Uh, we don't have the capacity to understand the scriptures unless your spirit opens our eyes. But Lord, we thank you that you are working, and we thank you that you give us concrete, regular reminders that you're with us and that you love us. And God, I just pray that you would bless your people through this meal, that they would be reminded of how precious they are to you and that you bled for them and that you died for them and that you rose for them. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.